Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Welcome back, everybody, to the final episode of Making Action Happen for 2023. We're excited. Uh, we had a really great year this year. And hey, Cole Kelly, guess what? I'm wearing my Sudsbury um, Bulldog sweatshirt for you today. So we've kind of got a cool episode. Uh, I'm going to let Brian introduce Brian, who's uh, on with our on with us today. He's a wildly interesting guy about archaeology and oil and gas and he's been a staffer he's totally brian's kind of dude so um i'm going to turn it over and brian let you um introduce brian so this is either the last episode of the year because we haven't done one in two weeks or the first episode of 2024 oh depending when they put it up That's so okay. either way when you're it listening works. to this it's the end of the year or it's the beginning of the year and Again, we haven't done anything in two weeks because we've been busy with Christmas and reorganizing, which this will will be part of the new Making Action Happen platform and what we're seeing next that we've been teasing for the past six months, I think. But um, with that, just go to www.makingactionhappen.com and you can get everything on Making Action Happen up there. And again, we're on Spotify, you know, Apple, whatever you listen to. Every major platform. Every major platform. So we wanted to do something fun. Last year, if you remember, we had the good, bad ideas and bad, good ideas with the Farm Bureau was our Christmas oh, end of the year episode. And that was a blast. We we went up and hung out with um, Chad and all the Farm Bureau people. So we thought about it um, afterwards at about August or September yeah. of this year. So, Everybody was gone. Yeah, but... It was kind of cool because it was like a lot of good ideas came out of that. A lot of terrible ideas came out of that, but a lot of good ideas too. And it was, yeah. So I wanted to, I kind of want to do something like that, but instead we're going to do like good, good ideas this year. So, um, so I assume we're going to talk about archaeology and UFOs. Yep. All that, all that energy, oil and gas. And we'll have some good, um, Back in the office days for you two yep. stories too. So, so I invited my former colleague and friend who started this career with me back in the Senator Allard days. I think we both went to DC at the for our first like initiation processing, whatever you want to call it, trip. And, and how long ago was that? That was gosh, that was like two thousand and six ish, maybe seven. I think two seven. I think two thousand seven. I think I, I had seniority over you by like a month, but then you started <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but then you started, so you had more time than me, but then you left and then I had more time than you and then, you know, it bounced <laughs> around. But anyway, I so, wanted to, wanted to invite Brian Meinhardt on. I've worked with him in Senator Allard's office, Congressman Tipton's office. Um, we've worked side to side by side, even when he wasn't in those offices with some of the other professions that he's in. And now he's an archeologist. So Brian, why don't you introduce yourself and tell the listeners who you are? Well, thanks very much for having me on. Um, my name is uh, Brian Meinhart. Um, back in 2007, somebody named Brian forgot to bring a suit to the trip to D.C. Yes. I won't say which one. I, I knew there was going to be some good stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a I suit. Remember, uh, <laughs> you, you had one, and I remember being called the stylish one by Senator Allard. Yep. 
Because <laughs> you like, didn't oh. have the suit. And I think I think you had. I, to have a, I forgot it. You had a pink had, tie. Didn't somebody give you a tie and it was like a pink? Tie? Yeah, yeah. Because I wasn't allowed to go on um, down to the um, to the Senate floor or in the um, in the Capitol building without a tie. So yeah. somebody Yikes. had to let me borrow one. So yeah, I uh, yeah. <laughs> um but uh yeah that's where uh brian and i met um so yeah most of my uh uh, career i've been doing uh stuff with the federal government obviously was a staffer for uh, senator allard and then uh, brian and i worked together in congressman scott tipton's office for uh, quite some time um i kind of had a a couple of stints um uh worked in the congressman's office for a little bit and then went to uh, work for western energy alliance uh with the uh, oil and gas trade association there and did that for a little bit before coming back to the senator's office uh, or the the congressman's office sorry um and then uh, did a couple of uh, term appointments with the u.s census bureau um which were always when we did with the decennial census and did um outreach and um government relations um, work with that and those were always very hectic yes um a lot of fun this last one in 2020 was very interesting trying to pull off a decennial census during the covid pandemic <laughs> so that was a little bit of uh, hair on fire a lot but we got it done um, and then for the last uh, three-ish years, I've been working as an archaeologist, um, which kind of seems like a, a weird segue uh, for from going from all those previous positions. But um, archaeology is kind of one of those that I've, I've wanted to do it since I was a kid. Um, you know, when I went to uh, school, studied history, and um, I always kind of said that uh, politics was a a distraction kind of enticed me away from what I always really wanted to do. And I uh, always kind of did it in an avocational sense and uh, tried to keep up on my education. But uh, yeah, I went back to uh, grad school, got my uh, master's degree from a university over in England, and then uh, got on with a small company that I currently work for uh, Montgomery archeology span um, in Moab, Utah. So I work from my house in uh, Grand Junction and there's three of us. My coworkers are awesome. Um, I really enjoy doing it. Um, but mostly do uh, field work in Utah, um, primarily a little bit, uh, done some in Nevada, and then uh, previously had done some in uh, Colorado, Texas, and Montana as well through uh, field school and all that good stuff. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been doing since, loving it. And kind of took me 20 years to get here and, and do what uh, my, my kid ambitions were, but here I am. And that's kind of a, a cool success story because we're doing a lot of outreach um, with CU, CSU, and the colleges here in Colorado, specifically mm-hmm. in the rural space. And a lot of people think they can't continue their education because they have a full-time job, they have a family. But you, in fact, you continued your education. You got that higher degree while having a family mm-hmm. and a full-time job. So it's it's doable. It's possible. You just have to have the passion to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And th- there's a lot of the the program that I did was a distance learning. And one of my uh, coworkers, she's about to get her um, master's degree from Adam State, and same thing, just doing a, a distance learning. So okay, it's definitely see. doable. It's not easy, um, but it's it's doable. And then I did a really cool program through the Colorado Office of Archaeology, um, the OAHP office, um, called PAC, the program for avocational archaeological certification. And I think they're doing it. They were on hiatus for a little bit because it's the assistant state archaeologist that teaches the courses. But um, I did it when uh, Kevin Black was the assistant and he was awesome. He, he, he'd been doing it for a long time. Really great teacher, very entertaining. So that's something where the, the different chapters of the Colorado Archaeological Society will host 
those classes and they're taught at a graduate level. So, you know, either do like one day a week for several weeks or sometimes they'll do a, a weekend program, or at least that's the way it was when I did it. Um, so you're getting a, you know, um, kind of a cram session, but they, they do the whole spectrum of uh, cultural resource management and academia and just kind of a background on the, um, the different uh, periods of cultures in Colorado and, you know, lab um, techniques, uh, surveying techniques, excavation, you name it, they, they do the whole thing. So if, if anybody's interested in pursuing that and you don't want just kind of a, a very basic one-on-one level, um, I would encourage people to look into that. So with archaeology, you're out there digging up dinosaur bones, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, be honest, how often do you accidentally find a dinosaur bone when you're doing a dig? We have not um, typically doing a dig. Um, you, I've run across fossils um, out in the field occasionally, but they're usually marine fossils, seashells, things yeah. like that. But uh, if we did um, run across a paleontological resource that looked like it might be um, of interest to the agency um, or just of, of scientific value, um, some cultural resource uh, companies, the bigger ones, might have staff paleontologists, which for, for everybody listening, archaeology is human history, paleontology is fossils. Um, but uh, we... We, we would have the ability to take pictures of it and then uh, do a, a, a GIS point on it and then um, document it and kind of pass that information along. Just like, hey, by the way, we, we found like a complete diplodocus <laughs> skeleton <laughs> out there or something. If somebody awesome. wants to go check it out. But, yeah, uh, yeah so that that's kind of um, – that's somebody else's bailiwick, but uh, I would actually be ecstatic if I found something like that, but have not yet. <laughs> I feel like that's a word we don't use enough. Ecstatic. Bailiwick. Oh, bailiwick. <laughs> I was going to say uh, it was ecstatic. It sounded like an old timey, like uh, yeah, bailiwick. Uh, <laughs> Bully. Yeah. So tell us what you are working on. So you're on, you're Doing the archaeology thing, what does that look like? What is what does that mean and, right now? And, and to be fair, um, you see this a lot, especially in, in government. Whenever they're like the chemical depot is an issue. Um, what was the one we used to fight about all the time? Pinion Canyon. That's another one where they say, like, yeah. why are there archaeologists oh. there? What what does an archaeologist? What do you do? What is your job? What do you actually do? Because you know everybody thinks Indiana Jones right. or dinosaurs mm-hmm. or you know anthropology. My background. It's like, oh, so you dig up like. Mm-hmm old civilizations like no not at all that's archaeology I but, think about but what, what do you all the time what do you do as an archaeologist like what's your job what's your actual job yeah so archaeology is a branch of anthropology um so it's kind of a, a little more specified um yeah so uh with, with the archaeology you've got kind of that um conception of it being you know maybe a, a university sponsored project or something in some exotic location uh and looking at it purely from a curiosity aspect and there mm. still is that component to it, you know, there, there's definitely the uh, academic portion of it, but most of what archaeology consists of now is falls under cultural resource management. Um, and like you were talking about with um, the chemical depot or Pinion Canyon, um, what uh, there are federal laws that were passed. Um, some of them are, are pretty old, like the Antiquities Act mm-hmm. is, is a fairly old act. But uh, generally what we operate under is the National Historic Preservation Act, which uh, it was passed in 1966. Uh, 
and what that does is it requires um, any federal agency doing an undertaking. So any kind of activity on uh, federal public lands or that uses federal funding. And the states all have kind of their, so Colorado's got similar statutes for um, state lands, Utah, same thing. They've got, they're not identical, but they're very similar to what the National Historic Preservation Act is. Um, and so when the agencies, like with the, the military out the Pinion Canyon Maneuver site, if they're wanting to go out there and um, uh, potentially impact cultural resources, they've got to first inventory what's out there and then make an assessment of how significant they are. Um, so what that act also created was the National Register of Historic Places. So generally what we do in a very condensed nutshell is contract with uh, federal or state agencies to go do that inventory and assessment. Um, so we'll survey, um, you kind of basically, it, it is getting uh, uh, evenly spaced apart and you just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over the project area. And when you find um, there are uh, technical definitions of what constitutes a site, uh, for instance, you've got to have a certain number of artifacts or features um, for it to be uh, considered a site. And to differentiate between the two, think artifact is portable, feature is not. So if you find a projectile point, artifact. Find the remains of a prehistoric hearth, feature. Okay. Um, so when we, we find those things, we document them um, out in the field and then transcribe all that uh, back in the office and then compile everything into a report for the project where we document our findings. And it's got a whole contextual background to it and everything. So it's, it, it is very academic, but for the purposes of what the agency is looking for when we've documented the sites, and we'll also sometimes make recommendations on whether we think it's a significant site or not, and then provide that to them. And then they, they do their consultation process from there. A lot of times they'll wrap it into the NEPA process mm -hmm. um, where they have to do the environmental review. The cultural resources will sometimes just get rolled into that process because that's a resource that needs to be analyzed for potential impacts. And if there might be potential impacts, then they consult with the state historic preservation offices and other um, interested parties on ways to mitigate those. Generally, we'll try to avoid um, sites that are significant if we can because excavation is very expensive and you have to curate everything that you dig up indefinitely and somebody's got to pay for that um, so they excavation's fun I love digging um, but we don't do it as often just because it's very expensive to do and if you can just avoid um, impacting a site that's generally the, the course of action that people take and then as far as what constitutes a significant site it's whether it's got good data potential is a very common one there's criteria that are outlined that we utilize um, so if you've got a site that you can date or might have intact um, subsurface features that you can get a, a spatial context from, or just might add to our understanding of history and prehistory. Um, that's a very common uh, criteria that we'll utilize uh, to evaluate. But if you know a site is associated with historically important events or people, you know, like, and, and that does happen out here, but maybe think if you're, um, maybe you find something that's associated with like a civil war battlefield site or something like that would be obviously a significant event that you can tie a site to, um, that might make it uh, considered um, historic. Or if you find, um, something that is very unique and kind of exemplifies, um, types of construction or a specific period, you know, like historic buildings would probably be something that might fall under this. If you've got very unique architecture, um, that's maybe a, a pristine example of Victorian architecture or something like that. Um, or if you've just got very 
a stellar workmanship, I mean, you know, iron work or something. Yeah, so that's another job I used to do back in the day was blacksmithing. So <laughs> I have an appreciation <laughs> for that. But so, yeah, it, it, it's it's not completely objective. Our analysis can be a bit subjective, but we do have sidebars on the criteria that we use uh, um, to to analyze a site, uh, try our best to interpret what it is. And, you know, you, you do your best with the, the time constraints and the, the funding and everything that you've got. But then if we find a site that might be um, considered significant, then we might make that recommendation and then they have to figure out what to do with it from there. So, so one thing that, that's generally what we do. So one thing that you've been working on um, that we, we talked about that's kind of of interest to us because we're having this whole energy conversation here, um, bringing in possibly nuclear, hydrogen, gas, all of the above type stuff. And um, you're working on uranium mines, correct? Or uranium sites? Yeah, they yeah, have done um, lots of those, yeah. How does that work? Because I, I know yeah. there's... I believe there's some in Fremont County. I think some of it there came are. from there. And then, you know, just going back to our my old life, uh, um, all over the West Slope, you know, that the whole yeah. Durango to Grand Junction tail mm-hmm. stuff going on that's yep, still going on. Yep. That uh, mm-hmm. I think they allow the unhoused population to camp on still, but <laughs> on uranium mines, it, it was by it. It was, it was, it, it's a whole thing and I hope it's oh fixed. Oh my gosh. But was, I hope you're wrong. They just, did, they if didn't you just know. read this thing about Carbondale yesterday. Yeah, so. they, they didn't know that's what it was, but that was like, wait a minute. This is like a big pile of dirt that came from a uranium mine. That's in the middle of the area where people are at. Um, what do we do with it? But, so, but talk, yeah, that's wildly interesting to me. And, and, and part of, and part of the reason I think there's, such a big pushback on nuclear in Colorado is because of the legacy of uranium mines. And then you also had um, the arsenal, um, what was it called? Rocky Flats up there that had um, a lot of issues dealing with radiation and disposing of it and exposure mm-hmm. and, you know, that type of thing. So go into the process when you're working with a uranium mine, what is that like? And why, why are you even there in the first place? Yeah. Um, so the uranium um, mining, just as a subject in general, I've always found pretty fascinating. But uh, you start getting into, well, what do you do with some of these sites? Because they are now considered historic properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the threshold for what constitutes a historic property is 50 years. Um, so you've got on the Colorado Plateau, um, which is, you know, kind of that uh, Grand Junction was right smack in the middle of the uh, uranium boom uh, that was kind of late 40s, 50s, and then then stretched all the way into the uh, um, 1970s and into the 80s in some of these sites. But uh, um, with a lot of these old mines, um, I'm trying to figure out, like, where do I even start with this? Uh, well, let's go back really quick. Um, yeah. How does archaeology um, how, get, bridge that gap between archaeology and uranium mines? Like that, yeah, that's a weird. So, so, yeah, so to, to go to, to Brian's question on why are we even there? Uh, because these these sites are now hitting that fifty year old threshold. Mm-hmm. So legally. Again, um, anytime that there might be an undertaking, which in the, the case of the, um, the mills and a lot of these mines, they're trying to clean them up um, because, of course, they do have the hazardous materials associated with them. Um, they've also got physical hazards like open mine shafts um, that people might fall into or livestock might fall into. A lot of the tunnels are starting to subside. So you've got sinkholes uh, that might be out there. Um, and then, uh, you know, the the mine waste piles contain uh, some hazardous components to them. Um, so 
there's a need to go out and clean them, but they're also still legally required to document them as historic sites and assess their significance. And when you look, you know, I was trying to figure out again, you know, going back, oh gosh, where do I start on this? Not only are they um, within that time threshold, but when you think back on the history of the uranium mining industry, it actually goes back considerably. The uranium has been known since I think even the, the Romans used to utilize it as mm-hmm. a, a pigment for coloring ceramics and some paint, things like that. So it's, it's uranium is a pretty ubiquitous uh, um, element. It's everywhere. Like you dig out some soil, it's probably got some trace uranium in it. This happens to be concentrated in some of these ores. Uh, but on the Colorado Plateau, uh, over here on the western slope and, and into Utah, uh, the type of ore that it was typically found in was called carnitite. And it also had other elements in it that, um, like uh, vanadium is another one uh, that you may have heard of that mm-hmm. was used as a steel alloy. And so that, before they figured out any kind of economic uses for the uranium that would typically be what they were after was the vanadium content in that because obviously with the you know industrial revolution and and trying to alloy steel and harden it vanadium was a very important resource Um, and then they also uh, as they were starting to understand uh, kind of some of the physical properties uh, you had uh, um, I believe the scientist's name was uh, Antoine Becquerel uh, over in France that worked with uh, Pierre and Marie Curie who everybody has heard of. And they were the scientists that were really looking into trying to understand the, the physics of radioactivity and discovering that. And they were working with uranium, I believe, initially at first. Uh, but then they found uh, an element that was pretty common within the ore that was very highly radioactive that they um, got pretty excited about studying called radium. Which uh, has anybody you ever hear about the luminescent paint back in the early 1900s that they used to put on watch dials or gun sights? Because yep. it was kind of cool, yeah. you know, glow in the dark. Glow in the dark. Um, that was ra- radium that they would mix into the, the paints. And then, of course, I think it was uh, Netflix that had the the movie about the radium girls um, that were getting sick because they were um, sharpening the the points of their uh, paintbrushes mm-hmm. uh, on their tongues because they needed to get a really fine point to do these fine lines with the, the radium paint. But, um, you know, they, they didn't really fully understand the nature of radioactivity and some of the health hazards back then. Um, they even had kind of weird things where uh, um, there was a, a kind of a craze for a while of people drinking radium-infused water because <laughs> it was considered kind of like it was the Red Bull of the day. We were like, ah, oh, it makes you feel great. Oh. <laughs> Give you superpowers. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you had uh, some famous instances of uh, of that. Just kind of some of the that's how the X Men snake oily kind of things that they used to do uh, back in the day. But so 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 radium was uh, sought after for that as well. But they they quickly figured out that you could use it in cancer treatments as well. You know, radiation therapy we still use today. Um, and so they were figuring out um, ways that if you could control it, um, what are maybe some of the the medical applications of it. So the vanadium and the radium were typically what they were going after at first. But uh, um, you had kind of a boom and bust cycle in the mining of that. But then uh, World War II hit and they were still going after the vanadium. Uh, because obviously anything that you can alloy steel was very important for the armaments. And that was also a, a factor in the first world war as well. But, um, 
unbeknownst to everybody at the time, they had a little side project going called the Manhattan Project, uh, where they were still going into a lot of these mills and mines and, and going after the vanadium. But they had um, the, the side project of trying to uh, extract the uranium from that as well. Um, and Grand Junction, actually, the uh, current DOE facility was one of the, the first Manhattan Project sites. They, they still got the office down there. But... Um, you know that that that's obviously a very important event, and a lot of these uranium mines that may have been part of some of these earlier ones um, that were still operating. Obviously, that's a significant event that maybe they were associated with. But uh, um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, 1945, people figured out well that's what they were doing, um, and then after the Second World War ended, there was obviously a frenzy to try and get as much uh, uranium as you possibly could because you know that was kind of the advent of the the cold war and that's typically kind of the second phase of the history of the uranium uh, mining industry that we go into you've got the kind of going after the vanadium and the radium at first you're still mining the same ores but you don't really care about the uranium too much and then you've got um the phase where they were doing uranium mining for the weapons um you know, during the Cold War. Um, and there there was, it was kind of an interesting boom um, in a lot of ways. The uranium boom kind of mimicked what you might think of with like the old gold rushes where people, you know, ah, there's gold in them hills and everybody just freaks out and goes chasing after it because there's a lot of money to be made. The same exact thing happened with uranium because the government just had such an insatiable appetite for it, but it was kind of unique. They were the only legal buyer. You couldn't just, you know, it wasn't like gold or silver or copper where it was just going into the private sector. It was the government buying the uranium. But of course, you know, during the Cold War, uh, especially after, I, I forget, Brian, maybe you remember, um, everybody thought that the Soviet Union wasn't going to get an atomic bomb until, I don't know, late 50s or whatever. And I think it was 1948 that they did their first successful test. So that freaked everybody out. So, you know, got to get as much as you possibly can. And so that the government um, bought the ore at extravagantly high prices, gave really good bonuses for high-grade ores, and so there was a ton of money to be made. And they were out doing a lot of the prospecting. The uh, Geological Survey um, did a lot of drilling prospecting, but they also transitioned from the Manhattan Engineering District after the Second World War and figured, we, we need our own agency to oversee all this because this is just ballooning beyond the scope of the military. And so with the Atomic Energy Act, they created the Atomic Energy Commission, which is the precursor to the modern Department of Energy. So that's that's kind of where, where their birth was. But um, so this, they were going out and doing a lot of this prospecting as well, but they were publishing all of their findings to everybody, you know, basically recruiting private sector, um, you know, wildcatter prospectors, you know, go out and help us find this stuff. And, you know, there's a very good chance that you can strike it rich. And so you really had kind of a wild west, people just crawling all over with, uh, but, you know, you know, they, they had kind of their traditional pickaxes and shovels as well, but you also had people with, you know, the, the Geiger counters and they had kind of more sensitive equipment that you could attach to a vehicle or even a, an aircraft and, and survey the prospect that way. And they, they had a really wild, um, uh, uranium specific stock exchange that popped up in Salt Lake City that went nuts for a while in the, the mid 50s and there was of course all kinds of dishonest <laughs> you know sure. go out and get a claim and you know selling penny stocks and all that but uh, um, so that that went on uh, for several years before so that was during was, the 50s 
Yeah, it was kind of late 40s into the 50s. Into the 50s um, when that was happening. But, yeah. Um, but it was so wildly successful that they kind of found themselves sitting on top of more uranium stockpiles than they knew what to do with. So they started kind of crimping back a little bit on um, some of the bonuses and the amounts that they were paying. And, of course, that the government is the only place you can sell this stuff. But the government says, we got enough. We, we can't handle anymore. So the, the industry definitely kind of... Uh, had a, a a steep decline when the government basically decided we can't, there's only so many nuclear weapons that we can make with this stuff. Um, but then it, it kind of transitioned into, well, are there peaceful applications to nuclear energy, which, you know, it, it would be a good segue into uh, what's going on over there in the, the East slope where um, pretty early on, you had president Eisenhower give his atoms for peace um, speech, trying to, to calm people because everybody's, you know, they had seen nuclear explosions go off in war and, you know, it was not pretty. And people were understanding, gosh, we've got exponentially more of this weaponry out there and people were starting to really get kind of the apocalyptic end of the world feeling about this whole thing. And so they, they, they were trying to figure out ways to kind of calm people's nerves and are there other applications that we can utilize um, this industry for. And so they started to try and transition into nuclear power generation. And that's when you kind of, that, that was, I think kind of late fifties into the sixties when they started uh, really pushing that. And so that I think became uh, the primary uh, motivator for continuing the industry. Um, They, that in the seventies with the OPEC oil embargo, it really skyrocketed. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing is you, you think about the the mad rush that there was for this stuff early on the seventies was actually the highest demand because right. you're, you couldn't get your hands on oil, um, the gas, you had coal obviously that you could utilize for power generation, but nuclear seemed like it was going to be the savior. And so again, there was a, a mad dash for, uh, um, to go for the, um, the, the uranium and that, that, the industry uh, uh, experienced a, a sharp increase and then three mile Island happened and it really hasn't recovered since then. So, you know, it, it kind of uh, people got very skittish after that. And then of course the Chernobyl reactor wasn't uh, too long after that. And so even since then, you know, again, Brian, you and I were just kids at the time, but so I don't really remember it, but um, yeah, it's, nuclear power was kind of the world of tomorrow for a while. And then after those, um, after those accidents happened, people really kind of chilled on the idea of, of doing nuclear power. And, and then, that was the eighties. Yeah. yeah. But then when it started yeah. to come back, you know, you started to have mm-hmm. the discussion with the small modular reactors and even here in Pueblo, they were talking about bringing some in, yeah. they were called something different than I think they were pebble mm-hmm. reactors, but then Japan happened. Um, yep. Yeah, and that that kind of like set it back again, even though that was a very outdated, poorly maintained plant that you know uh, it wasn't a, modern. Yeah, on a on a rift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fault line. <laughs> but but the the conversations coming back at least here in Pueblo mm-hmm. and in Colorado because I think they're doing a pilot project. Where is that at? Is that at Idaho so, Falls? Um, there are there's several things going on in Colorado yeah. right now. Um, one of them is over in by Craig. They have um, they have been given a good deal of money to do a 
you know, several million dollars to do a feasibility study mm-hmm. for an SMR in Craig. And of course, we're looking at um, what can be done here with Comanche yep. 3. Um, so there's a lot of um, interesting, interesting things going on. And I think um, contextually, we have to it's really important to know this history and to know the when and the where, and that's what you work on, right? Is, is the, um, and I'm a little, you know, I'm, it hurts my heart a little bit that it's only 50 years before you become a historical site. My house is a historical (laughs) site. And I look at a newer house. Officially I'm a historical site. Um, wait, we got it. You got to sound academic. My house is an historical site. (laughs) (laughs) Um, my mom's house is a historical site, like three times over. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. That I didn't realize that there was a kind of a boom, two booms, with uranium mining. But what's what you said? What's interesting? The only customer is the U.S. government. You're mining something that you can't sell legally to anybody else. Now, has there ever been any evidence of them selling uranium to I just have a non U.S. government entity? Uh, or the I'm U.S. Sure government it selling it? I don't know. Yeah, specifically. They, they, they keep that pretty well uh, under wraps. And yeah. then you, you got to think like uh, um, before you can get a fuel that is usable in a reactor, whether it's a power plant or even getting it anywhere near weapons grade. It's very difficult to, to do. You have to enrich it. Um, natural uranium is mostly uh, U-238 is the uh, isotope. Um, and U-235 is the one that can sustain a chain reaction. And it's less than 1% of the uranium that you find. So when you're mining this stuff, kind of what the process is, and also as we're, we're talking about all this, maybe something to point out that we're doing when we study these old sites is remember that the mining and milling process of yesteryear is not how it's done today. Yeah. Right. So was, you know, Thank we're, you we're, for we're saying that. About, I was going to yeah. ask you, I was going to ask yeah. you to dive into that but yeah it's yeah. a you're talking pickaxes when the first boom happened um what does that look like today yeah and and i'll i'll, I'll kind of defer obviously you know you were talking about the the mine in uh, canyon city which i'm sure you you two are more familiar with i believe that's a um solution mining where they actually inject into the ground and dissolve the uranium and then pump it back out but yeah so that that's kind of going back to uh you know, the archaeological aspect of it, one of the things that we try to flesh out, I mean, we're, we're studying human history. And so you look at the mess that's left behind, but, you know, you, you try not to get too caught up in just describing physically what you see, the really technical aspects of it. And that's important. But what we're really going after as archaeologists as an anthropologist is you know you want to understand human history human behavior right. how it evolves and in, in uh, mining archaeology a lot of that is how that technology evolves but you also look at um, a lot of the arguments that we have within the industry is this this is our heritage it's our past we want to study it we want to preserve the past to the greatest extent that we can but when you're dealing with toxic industrial waste, whether it's uranium mining or other mining for that that matter, or any of these industrial processes that, you know, may have used, uh, you know, mercury or acids or any of that. It, in, industry can be messy. It, you can control it and you can do it in, in, in a, uh, in a clean way, but you know, there, there, there are processes involved that create wastes that 
back in the day weren't regulated. Um, you know, again, you can't just go open up a, a mine now and then kind of toss your waste pile out there and it's unregulated and you're not bonded out. Uh, you got to clean it up, clean up after yourself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of these environmental laws and regulations that we have now uh, governing these industries are there because they didn't used to have them. And so you do have areas on the Colorado Plateau, for instance, that are just pockmarked with a lot of these really small uh, uranium mines. One of the things about the the ore and uranium is you can have big operations, but the, the ore deposits kind of tend to happen in lenses in sandstone formations, uh, at least with the, the carnotite ore. It's not that way um, everywhere, but the mining's a little different. You typically don't have these big extensive tunnel systems underneath. Most of the mines were relatively small and you could, uh, um, you could clean out any marketable ore pretty quickly on a lot of these. And therefore you've got thousands of these things out there, uh, that need to be cleaned up. Um, so, uh, uh, but yeah, kind of looking at, well, how do we preserve that heritage, but still keep public safety intact? Uh, with, with the mines, with uranium, most people, the first thing that pops up is, oh, they're radioactive. Um, that That's kind of the, the big uh, danger uh, red flag that pops up uh, with the, the mining industry. But the mines themselves actually aren't that bad as far as the radioactivity goes. The, the nasty stuff is the radon gas. That's one of those legacy impacts that, you know, it, it definitely hit home generally everybody on the western slope especially here in grand junction we all knew you know somebody's grandpa that died of cancer because they were a mill worker a mine worker but they didn't have uh the regulations in place to mitigate that you can you can do safety standards that are required now you can't have a uranium mine that doesn't have really technical ventilation systems in they're typically wearing protective clothing uh possibly respirators um doing dust control they didn't used to do any of that they they knew that there were the dangers there from the scientific works um you know late 1800s early 1900s but um they didn't have the legal framework to require uh, putting like a, a blower uh, to ventilate the air out and kick that radon gas out um, or it was expensive. But again, if you're not kind of forced to do that, and a lot of these were just little independent mines where it might be, you know, a, a guy and his buddy that are working their claim or just contract. Like I said, most of these things, not all of them, but a lot of most of the ones I've worked with are really quite small. You didn't have a whole lot of people working on them and they weren't super heavily financed, big, technical undertakings they were relatively simplistic operations and so um you know you've got the, those health impacts out there but you know there there, there are things that still need to be cleaned up one of, one of the uh, big hazards is a lot of these are still open shafts open tunnels and you don't want people going in a because of the you know they're they're radon traps but you have to be as i understand exposed to stuff like that over kind of a long-term um, for it to really have much of a health impact on you. And then you can get into the, the type of radiation that um, uranium and, and that emits is actually pretty easy to block. There's there's the different kinds. Um, and it, it decays via alpha particle radiation, which your skin can generally block that or just, you know, a very uh, thin veneer. So it's not too dangerous externally. It's particularly nasty if you breathe it in mm. or eat it. And it gets into your body. So, again, simple mitigation measures um, can provide the safety um, precautions that you need. But, 
they're they're also in very unstable formations and so you get people wandering around inside these mines and oh, there might yeah. be roof 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 collapse or something like that or just you know falling into a shaft so what you know the what we were doing in documenting these um was again for a lot of these safety closures um so you know we we, we went and documented a lot of these mines and recorded them and um they uh, they were putting a lot of gates over the tops of some of these shafts and tunnels to keep people out. But the other cool thing is, is that um, it's bat habitat. So that was one of the the big, um, uh, big things that we we're trying to do is preserve bat habitat because they love going into these mines. Um, so you got to have a way for them to get in and out. And, so and it's not dangerous for the bats. It, it, I'm not a biologist, so um, I don't know. To what well, I guess if it was, then the bats would want to live there. Yeah, it, it's enough so that the the biologists that are working with it consider it valuable habitat for them. And okay. again, you know, like I said, oh, yeah. I think it's got to be typically be pretty long term exposure, and the um, lifespan of a bat probably isn't long enough for it to really have too much of an impact on them. Um, so they they look at some of these old. Um, remains that are left behind as more important as habitat than not. And so if you can keep people out and keep them safe um, while still facilitating that habitat, then that's a that's good thing. Idea. But, you know, there, there's still the waste piles and stuff out there and that, that stuff can leach into the groundwater, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's still cleanup that needs to be done. Um, the, the real nasty sites were the mill sites. And again, remember, this is years ago and they don't do it this way now. Um, but you know, you're discharging mill tailings that do have radioactive materials in them and a lot of nasty chemicals a lot of the time, cause that was part of the process. And, uh, so they went, when they passed the, uh, uranium mill tailings and radiation control act, which Brian, you're familiar with, yep. um, they, they did their initial focus on the cleanup of the mill sites. Cause that, th- those were the, the really nasty ones. Um, they're in Western Colorado. One of the famous ones is the Yerevan town site. Um, which is completely remediated now, um, but it's just, there's nothing there anymore. Uh, but they did make an effort to document that to the extent that they possibly could, because again, it was a historic site dating back to the early 1900s. But that's kind of, again, that that balancing act of how do you preserve this heritage while also understanding that it's industrial waste that's hazardous and it needs to be cleaned up so i guess so that's, that's, kind of that's that, my yeah. question for you um yeah. excuse me that was my, this is my question for you for so looking at it from you you've genuinely looked at it from the historical perspective and it's relative it's a relatively new i mean we say 50 years and and mm-hmm. um we're talking probably more about 70 75 years really how old that um industry is um but it's it's had a tremendous impact looking at mm-hmm. from a historical perspective and the direction and the landscape of of that technology today 70 75 50 to 75 years later what what do you think give us a perspective of um, is it going in the right direction? Is it something we should be, um, you know, thinking about more? Is it safer? Is it, are there a lot of pitfalls that we're just, um, have our heads in the sand on or, or to use your word that we have certain ballywicks about? How do you? Yeah. Yeah. As far as the differences between the, the modern industry and the past, it's night and day. Um, you know, it's not without its potential hazards. Uh, you know, that, that just kind of goes with the territory of regardless of what you're doing. I mean, any human activity is going to have 
environmental impacts. Um, but it's hopefully looking back on the history of it, like I said, it's a very fascinating history and it was very kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Um, as far as, you know, again, we, we, we can look back at kind of the mess that was left behind, but you always, as a historian or archeologist, you always try to put yourself in their shoes. You know, we, we've got the benefit of 2020 hindsight. And so you look at some of the decisions that were made and you just kind of, what on earth were they thinking? You know, kind of look, look at the mess that was left behind, look at the health impacts on these poor workers. Cause it's not that they didn't know that it was dangerous, but again, you know, they're, they're looking at their, their worldview is cold war existential crisis. You know, I, th I think that, you know, for better or worse, they were looking at if we have to sacrifice some people in the process of, for, you know, the greater good, that's probably the, the mindset they were in. But, um, you know, as far as now, I, you know, I, I think that there was some good that came out of it in that we, we figured out a lot of the dangers that were associated with, with the industry and have safeguards in place if they're followed properly, you know, through um, statutes and regulations. And the same thing goes with any kind of mining or any kind of uh, extractive industry or any, you know, building homes, you know, it's, it's not kind of an anything goes and if somebody gets hurt or killed in the process, then, oh, well, mentality that there used to be. We, we hopefully have got safeguards in place now, um, you know, whether they're environmental standards or, or safety standards for the workers and then for the uh, proper disposal of the waste. Because if you don't if you don't do it conscientiously in an environmentally friendly way, it can be it can be bad. But if you do take those precautions, then hopefully you can do it in a way that you, you get the benefit with uh, as little of the bad um, side effects as possible. But, you know, again, it, it was what, what, what I've been dealing with out there is you're kind of looking at more of kind of a wild west approach, which, you know, it really it was kind of fascinating. It really was almost kind of like the wild west out there in a lot of respects. Um, and that, that's just simply not the way that it's done now, because you you got to see the legacy impacts and we don't want to go through that again. So if you're going to do it, you got to do it the right way. So we got about 10 minutes and then, uh, then you're, you can start cleaning your house again, vacuuming again. <laughs> um, um, so, okay, let's go to the fun side. What's one of the coolest sites you've been on or one of the coolest things you've done that, that you appreciate more than any other, other thing that you've done? Uh, whether it's uranium or any kind of oh, oh wait 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 anything. wait i i, I want to say you can say any story you want um because <laughs> um, i love me. a story but no uh, yeah. <laughs> so archaeologically what is the coolest thing that you've been a part of not brown related um, so one of the things I, I can kind of go into um, a bit of detail. One of the things that I do have to do is um, we're, we're not allowed to divulge like very specifics on locations. Of that a makes lot sense. Of the stuff. So for obvious reasons. Yeah, you don't want that totally makes sense. Out there looting sites and stuff. But uh, um, one of the really neat things, uh, my, my, my boss, Jody, um, he is very, very knowledgeable about one of the cultures that uh, was throughout most of Utah and into Colorado. And you can see some of the sites here called the Fremont. I always found them very fascinating. Um, and they were chronologically contemporaneous with the ancestral Pueblo. So you, the previous word, Anasazi. Mm -hmm. um, so they just kind of were northern neighbors and had a lot of similar traits to them but there's some just phenomenal rock art um they they, they did very elaborate 
um, just their rock art is gorgeous. You know, like Fremont rock art is um, pretty fantastic. And we get to go work in some sites where it's just miles of the stuff in the canyons. Um, but uh, we, we've gotten to do some surveys where we find, you know, kind of the, the remnants of, uh, you know, pit houses, which if, if you don't know what you're looking at, I think they're cool. But if you didn't know what you were looking at, most people probably walk right over the top of it and mm-hmm. just think it was a, a few rocks and a little slight depression kind of a thing. Um, but, you know, we find like the storage cysts and things like that in some areas where, you know, it's just the slab sticking out, but you can kind of guess, you know, there might be, um, you know, food or some other materials that might be uh, down inside those. So I was, I was found those uh, very fascinating, but uh, yeah, as far as the, the coolest stuff that I personally have uh, been a part of, I, I really particularly like that. And then the other thing, and I, <laughs> I haven't found any of the, I, I, I found maybe possibly one paleo point. And that's the really old stuff um, in my life. They're pretty rare and everybody gets excited when they find those. But uh, even just um, a lot of the, when you, you find like a, a flake stone tool or something out there, it's very easy for it to kind of get commonplace of like, ah, I've seen a million of these, but I, I like to try and remind myself to stop and think about just how stinking old some of this stuff is. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking thousands of years sometimes. And you try to think, you know, like, you know, the, the, the person that, that made it, you know, like, uh, you know, what, who was their family? Where did they live? Were they cool? Were they a jerk? You know, just kind of trying to personalize that stuff to the uh, greatest extent possible. But, you know, if, if I'm holding something that's five or 6,000 years old, when you really stop and think about just how long ago that was, and I get to sit there and like do that for my job, go find this stuff and analyze it and hold it and see it. It's just, it, it blows my mind. You know, the paleontologists always joke around with us and be like, yeah, archeology span is just the overburden. <laughs> you want old fossils is the way to go. But yeah, that to, to me, that, that never gets old of just, um, just, just how, mind-blowing it is to sit there and, and hold something that somebody made that long ago it's just crazy to me or sit in a you know a, like the mesa verde the cliff dwellings and you know that stuff mm-hmm. which i was surprised uh i didn't realize that they didn't even really know about that till about 1911 1912 was something like it that. was it was known i mean but um, nobody actually went yeah. there and like did anything with it or really studied it till the 1900s yeah. Yeah, because it was the um, oh, the Weatherills, yeah, um, the the ranching family that, uh, um, and obviously they they'd known about it for a while. Yeah. But you know, archaeology was kind of in its um, infancy. You know, it, it still was kind of the the processes and uh, it, people had always been interested in old stuff. But generally, they were like they wanted it as a collector's item. You know, now we're very careful when we find stuff to document, like where it's located. And generally, like I said uh, before, we'll we'll leave stuff in place because that spatial context is very important. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know, back in the day, people find a site and they're like, ah, it's got you know cool pot shirts and cool arrowheads and all of a sudden they snag it because it looked cool on the mantle or you could sell it or uh, uh, things of that nature or people just were fascinated with you know the Assyrians or the Babylonians or you know Egypt and so you know that those were kind of the exotic locations that people would go to but um, 
Yeah, in, in North America with, with Mesa Verde, that's kind of one of the earlier examples. And then you've got, uh, you know, some of the, like the, the mound builder uh, cultures and stuff too, that people knew that stuff was there and they would go dig for things, but generally they just wanted to find something that was cool and old mm-hmm. um, without necessarily studying it from an academic sense. And um, actually uh, Thomas Jefferson's kind of considered one of the, the first pioneers of modern technique because he, he would go dig stuff up on, on his, uh, on uh, Monticello. Um, but he understood trying to put things in, in spatial context and the stratigraphy and all that, that it's a little bit primitive compared to what we do now, but at least understood that you don't just go, you know, stick a stick of dynamite in there, blast it. And then whatever's still intact, that's cool that you can sell <laughs> is what you, you cart off. So yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. But that's the fun way to do it. Just go blow some stuff up and see what comes <laughs> that's out. How, right? That's yeah, the McCain read, way. We we still use like backhoes and stuff occasionally, but yeah, you read some of the reports of, you know, like just blowing up some of these old sites <laughs> to see if, you know, did we find the city of Nineveh? Let's go blow some stuff up. And you're just like, oh, oh it makes my heart hurt. Well, so, it, that makes sense because if you, if you watch like the old, um, like Egypt, like our, all the archaeologists going to Egypt, they're just like blowing stuff up left and right. They're like, well, we think there's oh, something yeah. under there. And then you see yeah. them standing around and it's all, and then they they're take, climbing they through. They take it. dynamite into the archaeological digs, yeah, to one of the pyramids. Yeah. That's definitely why Indiana Jones always had dynamite. Um, I was thinking more of the mummy movies with Brendan Fraser, uh, but yeah. So, um, so Brian, leave us with um, a story. I call them the ones you keep. The uh, something that um, you found, or something that you discovered. Let's say it that way, where you're like, "Oh my goodness, this is why I do this. This is why I love what I do." It's the it's the things that it's your it's a manifestation of the why you're doing what you do. Um, I haven't been doing it long enough that I have anything that's really that cool. Um, it, it, I, everything is cool. Um, but, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, finding the remains of somebody's, uh, habitation is really kind of cool. Cause you get to see, you know, where somebody, uh, lived, but I think the coolest artifact I ever found was a, uh, it was just a small little flat stone that had some etched lines on it. And I don't know if it was a gaming piece or a talisman or some other, who knows what it was, but it was just kind of neat to, you know, again, you, you look at the, uh, um, a lot of the uh, stone tools, you know, you find projectile points or monos and matadis and things like that. No, those, those are really cool, but those are kind of implements that have like a, um, a utilitarian function and, and finding something that somebody made because again, maybe it was a part of a game that they played, or maybe it was just, they did it for fun or I don't know the reason why, but it was really neat to find something that wasn't necessarily utilitarian. Of course, somebody would probably, who's been doing this longer than me might've looked at it and been like, Oh, that's what that is. And I, I could be completely wrong about it, but I, I, I just found it kind of interesting that to, to find, find something that was, uh, you know, again, done for reasons that weren't necessarily. It was, it was decorated. Well, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. It, it makes them more that you're dealing with humans, just people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. it's not always shooting stuff, fighting and utility. If you find something that's, mm-hmm. Hey, somebody was bored one day scratching on a rock or they played games that yeah. kind of connects us to our past a little more beads or something like that, where, you know, it's they, they, they had a lot of the same interests that we do. And yeah, it does really help to kind of personalize a little more. And I, I got one more and then okay. we'll let you go. Right. Okay. So have you, have you ever, 
okay. Well, going back to the mine thing. So my uncle was like an amateur geologist and we'd go in mines all the time, which was incredibly scary and stupid looking back. Cause I was like seven climbing through like old mines and in South Dakota and even in Colorado to a point. Um, but we would always laugh at the graffiti. So there would be graffiti in there from like 1870, you know, and pretty rude and lewd graffiti. Have you ever, have you ever, um, and I think that somebody, somebody said they found graffiti in like Pompeii and then there's some, uh, examples of Egyptian kind of graffiti, like talking smack Mm -hmm. about somebody. Have you ever seen anything like that here? Like something that, Antique graffiti. Yeah, something that might be, you know, like so-and-so is an idiot. You you know what I mean? Uh, Because I think that was the Egypt one. It was like, it was something like, it wasn't Cleopatra, but it was like Cleopatra gets defecated on by people or something like that. Right, yeah. Something weird (laughs) like that. Nothing for, you know, we do find a lot of historic inscriptions. um, And those generally are just people writing their names and dates, you know, and whether it's the wagon, axle grease, or scratching their name on a rock or something like that. But uh, we did, uh, I didn't personally find them, but I had a coworker that found um, some Aspen art. The um, harbor glyphs is kind of the technical definition for them. But, you know, people kind of give you, if you carve your, your name or initials or whatever in an Aspen tree. And um, there was a, a sheep herder that was really well known, and he he would do some kind of risque, kind of almost bent up girl looking stuff. But it was th- th- those were again, it was you know a, a known guy that did them. But um, like I said, I didn't personally find them, but seeing the pictures of them, I'm like, good grief! I mean, he, this guy was an artist hmm. and did it on the the sides of aspens and just really put some effort into these things. And like I said, he was he was very good at it. But yeah, some of some of his aspen art was. A, a wee bit risque. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Not, no, 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 not, it was tasteful risque, but yeah. it was still. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and I've got to so, ask. Yeah, that, I've got to ask. Yeah. What about ancient aliens? Anything that would that would be? Um, Do, have supportive? you seen any pictures of UFOs on the side don't, of a cliff? Anything that looks don't, a don't. little, you know, a little suspect. A little suspect. Um, I was always told um, that if you didn't know what something was, it's always ceremonial. Uh, but my personal opinion is, and then Brian, you can go ahead and cut the feed right here. It was aliens. <laughs> All of it was aliens. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's. It, I always thought that was kind of funny. We were like, uh, I had a professor at college that was like, yeah, if you if you read something with ceremonial, there's a good chance they just didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. So we could go. Is it ceremonial, or is it um... ceremonial? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you were saying with some of the uh, the graffiti, and you know, you always you, you need to be respectful of other cultures and not try to interpret things through like our modern cultural mm-hmm. lens. But there's there's some rock art out there that I would also call risque, and whether or not it was like the Roman, you know communal latrine graffiti and just being <laughs> lewd, or whether it was actually something that was considered. Um, very important in taste. I who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it could be either or, but yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it's just another indication of how we're all connected. Yes, yes, it is because mm-hmm. we are all connected. <laughs> so, well, Brian, thank you so much for doing this and taking some mm-hmm. time when, with your time off to do this. We, um, Brian said we're we're going to have an archaeologist on. I'm like, what? And I'm like, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> Because we're big fat nerds over yeah, here too yeah. about all of it. So thanks so much. And um, so next time we're going to have to have a little more in depth discussion about um, 
my my partner and colleague over here, There's Crimson no Kane. About, there are no stories about me out there. I that nobody don't knows anything. believe they that all signed for NDAs. a moment. All Brian NDAs. did. I don't believe all that. NDAs. I don't believe that. So. Um, let me do the disclosure. The disclaimer. Disclaimer. Dis- um, I said, see, that well, was uh, that was a Freudian slip. I said disclosure because all the UFO stuff going on. But I do want to say something. So, um, but shall we do this after when Brian's done? Like yeah. sort of a sign off for the year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Brian, and um, I will be texting you soon with. Uh, all right. Sounds good. good stuff. So I'll let you know when this goes up. But Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. We appreciate you so much. Thanks. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. We'll see you Appreciate soon. Bye bye. Right. Happy New Year. Happy bye. New Year to you. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.